This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we talk with a human factors and ergonomic expert about airline seats and learn how comfort and safety are related. We also talk with the founder and CEO of LiveATC.net. And to round it out, we have our traditional Labor Day message. It's all coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 715 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight. This episode kicks off a temporary format change because I'm on a cross-country overlanding trip. A long trip. A couple of months. The only thing that's certain is that I'll be at the Albuquerque Balloon Fiesta the first week in October and in Nevada mid-October. Maybe with Utah or Arizona in between. Who knows? Now, that's not very conducive to producing podcasts, but we don't want to disappear for a few months, so here's what we're going to do. We've been busy pre-recording interviews with some really interesting guests. Those will become the episodes you'll hear over the coming weeks. Hopefully, there will be times when I have good internet and we'll assemble the usual crew for an episode more like what you're used to. Otherwise, it will be like what you hear this time. And yes, I know there is now Starlink for RVs. It's new, it's very expensive, and maybe an option for the future. Oh, and on the Balloon Fiesta, after being on the waiting list for months, I did get a spot in the RV standard lot, for September 29th through October 7th. So if you plan on attending the Balloon Fiesta in 2022, drop me an email at the at com, and I'll trade contact information. All right, on to the episode. First up is Dr. Micah Ensley. She's the Government Relations Chair for the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society, the HFES. She's also president of SA Technologies. Our main man, Micah, and I talk with guest Micah about airline seating comfort and safety. We know the FAA is looking at this now, so it's a timely discussion. Well, we've got a terrific guest joining us today. First, let me introduce the co-hosts. Uh, we have our main man, Micah. Hi, Micah. Hey, hello, everybody from the northeast of the United States. Also with us is David Vanderhoof. David's on his day off. Yeah, nothing like taking a day off to record a podcast. That's right. What else are you going to do, David? I mean, come on. Uh, oh, I can think of a lot of things. <laughs> okay. And then we're also joined by Brian Coleman. Hello, everyone. It's great to be back. Our guest is Dr. Micah Ensley. She's the Government Relations Chair for the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society, and she's also president of SA Technologies, a situational awareness research design training firm. And she was formerly the chief scientist for the United States Air Force. So she's joining us to talk about airline seating and the human factors scientific data that's relevant to that subject. And it's a timely topic as the FAA is currently addressing seat size at the direction of Congress. 
Micah is an engineer. Her background, her educational background is in industrial engineering, me too, actually, with a Bachelor of Science degree from Texas Tech University and a Master of Science degree from Purdue University. She went on to earn her PhD in industrial and systems engineering from the University of Southern California. Micah is recognized internationally in the field of human factors, situational awareness, and related areas, and it's very much an honor to have her speak with us today. So, Micah, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Thanks, Max. I'm looking forward to talking with your group. Now, let me, before we start, Max, let me just point out something to our listeners that is very, very important so that they understand. It can be quite confusing. There are two Micahs on the show today, and I am not the one with any of these talents and degrees. I I am the know-nothing Micah as opposed to the important, (laughs) brilliant Micah that we have as a guest. So I think that's important for our listeners to understand. I'm glad you pointed it out because usually we confuse listeners with two Maxes, but yes, it's two Micahs this time. But, uh, you know, before we get into this situation, this current situation with airline seating and the recommendations developed by the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society, uh, Micah, can you tell us a little bit about the role of chief scientist for the United States Air Force? I'm fascinated by what that is, but I have no experience with that. Well, that was a fascinating job. Uh, What the Air Force does is they bring somebody in from the uh, research and scientific community uh, to advise the chief of staff of the Air Force and the secretary of the Air Force on what's going on um, that that they need to be aware of. So we look across the Air Force at what's going on with with their programs and their research uh, opportunities, as well as what's going on in industry and academia in order to advise them as to where the Air Force should be putting its resources, what the up-and-coming challenges are, and just providing that outside perspective. So it's it's a two-year position. I got to go to Washington and worked uh, out of an office in the Pentagon, and it it was a fascinating opportunity, um, not only to work in in our government, but also to coordinate with other governments uh, that we are in partnership worldwide. So it was wonderful. It does sound like an amazing experience. How's the selection process work? How, how did you get selected for this? Well, you know, you never really know. Uh, so somebody uh, puts your name in the hat as having expertise that's relevant. Um, I was the first uh, chief scientist who's done anything in the human factors area, and I was also the first female chief scientist, ah. which I thought was really interesting because this was uh, in twenty. Um, 13 to 2015. So all those years, they had never had a woman chief scientist. So it was really quite an honor. Uh, but my particular expertise is in the area of situation awareness and automation. And as you know, we're looking at a lot of increased system autonomy that's going on in aircraft systems. Uh, so I was brought in to really help them take a look at where we need to be going with um, how we build autonomous systems and how we try to keep people in the loop and understanding what's happening uh, and that's a real challenge uh, when you're dealing with automation and, and autonomy. Uh, so that was actually one of the products I produced was a, a document called Autonomous Horizons that, that laid out where we need to be going with autonomous systems. So let me ask you, Micah, did you work on some of the systems like uh, that I think about when I hear about autonomous systems and, and, and interactions like that? Uh, some of the uh, the F-35 helmet design things that have changed uh, changed some of the outlooks on how things go or, or, or Bitch and Betty type uh, uh, situations from, uh, from the F-18, which again is Navy, but uh, similar in the terms of those kinds of designs and, and getting people designed in human factors? 
those those are longtime programs that that were going on in terms of basic automation. I actually started working on this uh, back on, with the the F twenty and the F F twenty three design uh, when we were looking at things like Pilots Associate, and they were they, these were programs back in the eighties where we were really looking at can we add artificial intelligence to the cockpit and what would be the impact of that. And we know that uh, what happens with AI as well as automation is people get out of the loop. They're, they're not able to keep up with what's happening. They get lower situation awareness. And a lot of my research was in defining situation awareness, figuring out how to measure it, and going in and evaluating the impact of those kinds of systems. So it goes way back. Um, things like the F-35 helmet, uh, which we're really looking at moving symbology from the head-up display into the helmet, um, that, those programs were actually trying to go through tests and evaluation when I was in the chief scientist uh, position and we were looking at problems like uh, increased jitter in the helmet and if you, that the um, iconology is jittering around it makes it really hard for people to see it um, and creates a lot of other problems so there was a uh, a great program that I wasn't directly involved in but I know the people who were that were that were uh, working to uh, solve those kinds of problems which they successfully did but but those are great examples of human factors programs hmm. Well, just one more question before we uh, move on to the to the real topic at hand, uh, and that is, uh, had you had any previous experience working with the military, or was this the first time? And, and you know, what was that like coming in as a civilian? Yeah, so most of my experience, um, I've worked for uh, large aircraft manufacturers. I've uh, worked. Uh, I was in, in academia. I worked as a professor, and then I ran a small business for fifteen years. And so all of my experience was, was indirect. I didn't actually work for the Air Force or, or another branch of the service. All of my work was doing research for the Air Force, the Army, NASA, uh, FAA, all of these other organizations. Um, but that's actually very typical when they, when they select somebody for the chief scientist position. Um, they're very much looking for that outside fresh viewpoint mm. and not somebody who's you know, already invested in the system that they think you know, could be uh, – maybe not as uh, able to be forthcoming. Uh, so by bringing somebody in and making a short-term position, you got nothing to lose. You just lay it on the line and, and tell them what you think. And uh, there's no politics involved. And uh, it's, uh, that, that's part of what they look for. And, and that position was really created when the Air Force was set up. Um, it, you know, it came about um, you know, from their experiences in World War II, where they really relied heavily on expertise that was coming from um, industry and academia, and, and they realized that for the Air Force to really be on top of things, they always want to be on top of what's happening with technology, not just today's technology, but, but where it's going 20, 30 years down the road. So uh, I thought that was really uh, far thinking of them to uh, set up a position to, to make sure they stayed in touch with, with uh, what, what was happening out there on the forefront. Yeah, it's always encouraging when you uh, hear about an organization, uh, whether it's government or or otherwise, that is thinking long term like that and and trying to bring in those perspectives and, and all. So that's, yeah. yeah, that sounds like a really wonderful experience. But but let's talk about yeah. airline seating. Brian always has one more question. I, I was just going to say that it seems really empowering in that position where because it's a two year period and not political, you can really say what's on your mind and I guess not so much have to worry about the repercussions that you can right. be true and honest to the position. It is. And, you know, when I, when I first went in coming in from outside, you're not really sure what it's going to be like. And I worried, you know, what's going to be very bureaucratic and, you know, against change. And I found it to be absolutely the opposite. It was so refreshing 
that people really were interested in, you know, how do we improve? How do we get better? How do we be more innovative? And they were very open to ideas and input. And I, I just found it a, a great experience from that standpoint. Very good. Now, airline seating. We've talked about uh, some of the requirements and what's going on, the regulations, but uh, maybe you can uh, give our audience just a kind of a quick overview of what the current regulations are with respect to airline seating, you know, the 60, uh, sorry, the 90 second requirement and all that. Right. So the actual requirements are, are fairly limited. Um, the FAA has in their stipulation that um, you should be able to evacuate the airplane in 90 seconds. And they, they don't go a lot beyond that. Uh, but what's happened over time is that, particularly since uh, deregulation of the airlines occurred, they've worked to get more and more seats into the same space. Uh, and we've all seen this happen, the, the, the shrinking uh, seat, the, sh- the shrinking uh, pitch, which is the distance between two adjacent seats. Um, that's gotten smaller and smaller. People have not gotten smaller and smaller. If anything, the American public has gotten a little larger. And we're all seeing a real challenge of being able to fit into these seats. Congress had, had asked the FAA to look into this uh, question. They, they've run another study. Um, but they're hesitant, I think, to go beyond that 90-second requirement uh, in terms, of, uh, in terms of, of what the legislation says. I think that uh, the American people, has been, uh, people have been very concerned about this topic. Last, I, I looked a couple of days ago, there were over 5,000 comments on the FAA's request for um, comments on these studies, because people just realize we don't fit in those seats very well. And and we all have stories, and and for good reason, um, they barely fit the average size person, much less the 50% of people who are above the average size. And and that's creating a a real challenge, not only for uh, those individuals, but for the people sitting next to those individuals. And, And as we cram people into smaller and smaller spaces, uh, bad things happen, air rage, uh, a lot of kind of things. So it's a challenge for people's ability to sit in those seats for the the duration of the flight. Uh, There's a distinction between uh, safety and comfort with regard to seats. And from from what we can see, what the FAA is now focused on and and is the, the basis for their request for public comment is is safety rather than uh, rather than comfort. Although I, I imagine that if you look at those five thousand so far comments, I wouldn't be surprised if most of them are, are uh, comfort related rather than safety related. Well, in my view, the FAA is defining comfort far too narrowly, and you know, comfort sounds like oh, oh, is it, you know a nice to have kind of a thing. And in reality, uh, safety is a lot more than just can you evacuate. That, that seat in the case of a, of a, of a crash. Uh, luckily, we don't have to evacuate airline, airplanes very often. You know, but that, that's, that's a good news thing. So for the 99.9% of the time we are in those seats, safety needs to be looking at, at how well does it fit the human body and, and the kinds of injuries that are occurring in that on the time when we're sitting in the seats, not just the time when we're evacuating the seats. And there, there are a lot of other kinds of, of uh, injuries that can occur. Um, I think we've probably all experienced getting our knees jammed when the seat in front of us pushes back into it. And we, you know, you get, you get, might get bruised from that. We get lower back injuries. Uh, we have people getting their feet run over by the carts or their, or their shoulders hit by carts because they're pressed out into the aisleways because they don't fit in the seats. So there are what I call, you know, probably more minor kinds of injuries. 
And then there's more significant injuries. Deep vein thrombosis is a, uh, a fairly significant um, problem that you can get from being, being cramped into seats and being immobile for uh, periods of time. Uh, and that creates pulmonary embolisms. Um, I know people who are young, hit, hit, um, healthy, fit people who got uh, deep vein thrombosis and uh, were, were bedridden for, for months before they were able to, to get the problem solved. So that's a very serious problem. Frozen shoulder is another good example. If you're crammed next to people and um, broad-shouldered people and you're, you're crammed into that seat and can't move, just having your shoulder immobilized for five or six hours can create um, that kind of problem. And, and that's a pretty painful injury to try and work through. It can take months to try and get rid of. So there are uh, you know, a range of kinds of injuries that can occur from sitting in those seats that's way beyond just comfort. Um, and, and I think the, the, uh, the current regulations probably should cover those kinds of, of safety considerations. I think this is one of those situations in actuality, I've been thinking about it, very much looking forward to speaking with you, where it's actually form is function, where safety and comfort become the same thing in many ways. A 28-inch seat pitch that you find on Spirit Airlines is not only uncomfortable, it's unsafe. Because if there's going to be a sudden stop, I'm probably going to get a concussion from my head flying into the seat in front of me. Uh, if there's going to be an evacuation, being a wide body myself, the odds of me getting out of that 28-inch seat pitch very quickly is going to slow things down. And when they actually test that 90-second evacuation period, they're using people that are 18 to 60 years old, none of them are in wheelchairs, and none of them are necessarily even my size, and they know that evacuation is going to happen. So that test isn't even accurate. Micah, you have it exactly right. Um, The test they ran is in many ways a best-case scenario. I will say that it's better than the previous testing, which all used um, experienced flight crews. They They would have pilots of flight attendants who would be the people who had to evacuate the seat. So they were probably fitter than most and uh, more well-trained than most. And this study was at least better in that they used just average people from the local population in Oklahoma City where they did the test. Uh, And those people were um, a better distribution of people in in terms of of size and weight and so forth. However, as you point out, it's still quite limited in that uh, there was no one over 60 there were no children. There were no uh, disabled individuals who, you know, much less wheelchairs, even even older folks that had trouble walking uh, or younger folks that had trouble walking. Um, those people weren't included. They got incentive pay for getting out of the, the airplane fast. So they're they're motivated to get out in a nice orderly fashion. Um, they're calm because they know it's not a real emergency. They don't have to deal with reclined seats. They didn't have to deal with, you know, people having laptops and technology strewn about or other belongings strewn about. Uh, So it was very much a best case scenario. And might I point out, they weren't going into the overhead bin to grab their luggage either, which happens all the time. It does. It does. So they were able to get out of the plane in in good time. I mean, most of those times were, were 40 to 45 seconds um, or less. Uh, so in half the time that that's allowable. But again, it was very much these best case conditions. They also didn't look at um, getting out of um, the exits that are over wing, where you have to crawl through a hole essentially to get out. And studies have shown that that people with a girth more than 41 inches are significantly slowed down 
going through those holes. And there are many people with a girth over 41 inches. So um, they, they weren't looking at a lot of those kinds of, of challenges. So fully realistic conditions, no. No, very much best case conditions. Brian, uh, you are uh, certainly putting on a lot of air miles lately. Why don't you explain just briefly to Micah what your, what your little project is? And then also tell us, are these issues something that you're conscious of when you're flying? Yeah, I'll take them in reverse order. Absolutely. And not only am I concerned about my fellow passengers, I'm also concerned about certain flight attendants. And I've talked about years ago, and this certainly happened when United bought uh, the Pan Am routes and were flying to the Pacific. I swear, some of those flight attendants flew during World War II. They were very, very elderly. And some had physical conditions themselves, and I'm not really sure if they would have been able to help me get out of the aircraft. And so it's concerning. Yeah, uh, traveling with my mother that has a really bad back, she has mobility issues. She always sits in an aisle seat. If I'm in a window seat next to her, yeah, I'm thinking, am I going to have to you know, crawl over her in order to get out of the plane? Um, yeah, so that's, that's certainly an issue. As far as my project that I'm doing, I'm actually um, taking part in the ultimate mileage run. So I have committed to fly uh, 300,000 miles in less than 18 months. And Mike and I have a podcast where we're documenting this Yeah, called the journey is the reward.org. So I am doing a lot of back-to-back trips, um, uh, next week, I'm actually going to be flying to Hawaii, where I fly to Hawaii. Um, I'm overnighting, fly back to L.A., get on the plane, fly back to Hawaii, and fly back to L.A. again. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I absolutely am keenly aware of who's around me, where the exits are, and I do actually devise a plan of if something were to go wrong, how am I going to get out of the plane as safely as possible? Well, I'm glad you're doing that. My, my hat's off to you for flying that that many miles. Uh, I hope you um, manage to book some airlines that have larger seats. Uh, some of those seats are are really small and really tight, and I worry about your physical health. Quite frankly, doing that much flying in in those seats because if you don't have injuries now, you might have at the end of that process. And that was actually part of the consideration in booking these is spacing to give my body time to recover. Uh, I definitely have uh, compression socks that I wear to prevent or to help prevent against um, DVTs. And I don't know, we'll see how it goes. Well, Micah, the Society published a a little paper in response to the FAA's uh, request for comments. I think maybe some of the points that you've raised already are also raised in that paper, in that message. Um, But what can you tell us about it? So just to tell you a little bit about the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society, um, human factors and ergonomics professionals in the, in the United States and elsewhere in the world uh, were made up of engineers, psychologists, physiologists, uh, people who study human capabilities, whether it be our physical dimensions, our cognitive dimensions, our perceptual capabilities, and we work on how you design technology to fit people. Uh, trying to redesign people to fit technology just doesn't work very well. Uh, and you end up with all kinds of errors and accidents and, and problems. So uh, what our profession does is, is study how people work and make sure that the technology fits people. In this case, it might be airline seats, but it's also things like the controls and displays in the cockpit, 
the automation in the cockpit, um, procedures, training, making sure that people can do it well in order to reduce injuries and improve performance and, and, and outcomes. So it's very much win-win for both people and for uh, organizations. And uh, as, a, as a part of um, what we do in that society, we have been trying to provide education and input to government agencies so that they understand the science behind what we do and how that impacts the kinds of decisions that they're making. Uh, so the policy paper that you're talking about is something that we had uh, put together based on all the human factor science that's been done in this area, both in terms of comfort, but also just in terms of performance and impact of, of uh, seating on human physiology and uh, injuries. The standard in the field is to design seating to fit 95% of the population. Generally, your workstation, your seating, wherever you're at, it should fit 95% of the, of the expected population. What's happened with the shrinking of these seats is that it is barely fitting 50% of the population, and in some cases, less than that. So things like uh, the pitch, which is the distance between uh, two rows of seats, basically, you, you should have about 32 inches of pitch uh, would be uh, suitable for for 95 percentile, but but you, if you look on Seat Guru, you find that uh, many airlines have seating that's uh, maybe 30 inches, uh, all the way down to EasyJet, Frontier, Spirit that have pitches as, as short as 28 inches. So you can really expect, you know, if, if you're if you're three or four inches less than what it should be for 95 percent of your population, you're really jammed in there. Um, and that's going to be very um, difficult to sit in that position and create those kinds of injuries, even before you have to evacuate in, in a hurry. Do those things take into account um, not only seatbelt length, but seatbelt width and multi-point seatbelts? Uh, because I know in some of the angled seats now in business class, they have three-point seatbelts, um, whereas it seems like actually a four-point seatbelt would be much safer. So, uh, yes, a, a seat belt that would include shoulder restraints would be much safer. So one of the uh, potential injuries when seats are too close together is head strike injury. So if, you know, not even if you're in a crash necessarily, but just if, if the plane has to stop quickly on a runway, people get thrown into the seat ahead of them. Um, you need over 35 inches between seats in order to avoid that head strike. And even at 32 inches, you're still going to get head strike injury. So our recommendation is that you have uh, shoulder restraints if you're going to have the seats that close together um, to have a you know, free flowing um, w without um, shoulder restraints would require 32 inches. The seat belt regulations right now, they only require um, 170 pounds. They only require to hold 170 pounds. A lot of the population is more than 170 pounds. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, that the whole, the whole requirements for seat belts need to get uh, reexamined and increased up to have greater girth as well as uh, greater uh, strength, quite frankly. So the strength is limited to 170 pounds. That's, um, that's almost shocking. That is the requirement, yes. Now, probably... They're over-engineered to some degree, maybe. Uh, well, has, anyone, has, any, has anyone ever tested them? To I have not seen testing data. It could be yeah. that some of the airlines have done that, but I have not seen testing data. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I remember um, when I first flew uh, People's Express, you may remember the airline that came out, and they had purchased their uh, 737s from Lufthansa. And yes, I'm a larger man, there's no doubt about it, but I'm not huge, uh, not as huge as some other people for sure. And I got on People's Express in the 737, and because it was designed for Europeans and Lufthansa, I needed a seatbelt extension where I would not have needed that in a, on a U.S. flight, uh, which I just found was, was very interesting because... Planes and, 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 and sometimes these kinds of requirements are designed differently based on the, uh, on the location they're going to be used. Uh, have, you, have you found that? And, and I have a second question, too. Yeah, Europeans, um, actually, they tend to be a little taller because you have a lot of the um, Nor- uh, Norwegian Viking blood in there, so you can get some taller folks. Uh, whereas the U.S. has, uh, as a population, we have many different racial groups, that some of which are smaller. So uh, we're, we're not as big in some dimensions, but we're probably bigger in other dimensions. And a lot of our planes do fly worldwide. And so they look at trying to harmonize what's going on with U.S. regulations and European regulations uh, through organizations like ICAO to try and, and harmonize some of these kinds of things. But looking at, at the different population groups is, is an important uh, consideration. My other question was, in looking at this, are you looking at uh, primarily economy seating, or are you also looking into uh, business and first-class seating? I I recently had an experience flying uh, first-class to the UK and uh, and one of the premier first-class or or business-class services, and found that actually the seats, based on how first or business-class is now set up into individual pods, they're not any different. They're not really any wider. They may lie flat, but I couldn't lie flat because my shoulders were too wide for the pod, And, uh, and getting in and out of the pod was also very difficult for while I had seat pits between me and the seat in front of me, climbing in to get to that seat was even narrower than it would have been had it been a 28-inch seat pitch. Uh, so I'm wondering if, if you're looking at it in regards to all classes of service, because people sometimes think you get a much better safety situation and a much more comfortable seat when you move up in, in, in class of service, which I have found isn't necessarily true. Yeah, I think a lot of the focus is on the economy seating because it is so much tighter and more constrained, but you, but your points are valid. A lot of your business class seats are at least wider, and that's better. The pods, I haven't actually looked at those to see what their dimensions are in terms of what percentage of the population it supports, but because it is a more enclosed space, uh, that could feel more confining for people who are over whatever size it, it is that they're designed for. Again, we're, we're really looking to say you should you should design for 95% of your, of your population. One of the things I'm more concerned about then pitch even is is width. And, and that's one of the things the study did not look at was it just looked at one seat and could you fit in that one seat. Uh, but you're, you may be three abreast. And if you have people who are wider than those seats, which is, is quite easy to do, whether it's just broader shoulders or broader um, girth, um, that's all overflowing into the, into the seats of the people next to them. And if you get a couple of big people next to each other, you know, think of, think of three football players in a row, they just can't possibly sit in that seat. And even if you've got two football players and you're the one person who's in between there, you are totally squished because they are all overflowing into your seat. And, and I don't blame them at all. I, I blame the airline seats. I mean, when you purchase a ticket on an airline, there's the expectation that it should fit most people. And right now it doesn't even fit average sized people in many cases. And that's a real challenge. In the study they did, for example, just looking at width, they looked at an 18 inch width seat and a 16 inch width seat. Well, the hip breadth of the people in their population 
on average was 17 inches. The 95th percentile was 21 inches. That means that even going into the 18-inch seat, there were a lot of people, you know, probably at least 25%, who, who were basically squishing everything to get into that seat. And that's, that's overflowing somewhere. Uh, or their shoulders were broader and were extending into the seats next to them. They didn't measure that at all. So that whole breadth uh, problem is a real challenge uh, and, and creates a lot of consternation. Um, you, you talked earlier about flight attendants. I, I have a lot of respect for flight attendants. They have a very tough job every day uh, trying to, to put on a cheerful face and shepherd a lot of grumpy travelers. And their job is made a lot harder when those travelers are even more grumpy uh, because they're having to deal with, you know, delayed flights and missed flights and all those challenges. And then they get crammed into these small spaces. And that does nothing for people's tempers. Um, you know, there's some classic psychology experiments where they would would pack rats into a cage. And the more overcrowded they were, the, all, the more the rats would fight. And that's what I feel like these days on, on an airplane is... Uh, is they're, they're overcrowding everybody on there and they're, they're starting to get bad behaviors. And that, of course, creates even more challenges for the flight attendants. So uh, I think we just need a, a, a reexamination of um, what are the expectations that are reasonable for people to have in, in purchasing a, a seat on an airplane? And should they be expected for their money to get a seat that actually fits uh, the majority of people getting on that plane? And, and I think that's a very reasonable expectation. And it may take an act by Congress to make that happen. Yeah, I think it would be nice if airlines, all airlines imposed or um, enforced a passenger of size rule, right? If you can't fit be in the seat between the armrests, you're spilling out into the other seat, either make them buy two seats or, you know, reaccommodate them elsewhere on the aircraft or something, because being that passenger next to the person of size is certainly a miserable experience. And that's not something that I paid for when I bought my ticket. I think that would be a tough sell. It, it would be a tough sell. And, and the reason is that it probably would affect, you know, a large percentage of the people and, and not necessarily <laughs> because there's anything wrong with them. It's because there's something wrong with those seats. And, yeah. and I think we have to stop blaming each other and start blaming the seats and, and the airlines who are, who are putting on too small a seats to fit us. Uh, that, that's yeah. where I think we, the, the focus needs to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have an infamous, I guess, story from this. This is from some years ago where uh, a uh, uh, ex- extremely large person sat, sat down next to me. I guess they had the window seat and I had the middle seat and it was just not going to work. So... We put up the armrest between the two of us, which at least allowed both of us to fit into that space. But uh, I used her thigh as an armrest the entire the entire flight, and I didn't say anything. I just had to put my arm somewhere, and that was the only place to do it. Now she didn't say anything. I have no idea what she thought about that experience, <laughs> but I wasn't going to bring it up if she didn't. But. Uh, you know, like you say, Micah, it's it's. I think it's difficult to 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 blame the passenger. I mean, it it could be. It's easy for some people to do that, but on the other hand, the, the seats need to accommodate the ninety five percent. No, absolutely. But my point really is, until that happens, until we do get better, bigger seats, I think it's really important for the airline to enforce a person of size rule and. I, I guess you're proving, again, you're a much nicer person than me. But when that's happened to me in the past, I've actually gone to the flight attendants and said, 
hey, this person's spilling over into the seat. We need to resolve this issue because I'm not going to sit here and you know, deal with this. I, I don't want to sweat against this other person. It's, it's uncomfortable for both of us. Yeah, yeah. And, and to Micah's point, too, previously, uh, uh, that, that discomfort adds to the stress of the passengers adds to the, you know, it's the too many rats in the, you know, in the, in the single cage. But uh, Micah, the society has um, made six recommendations and some of these we've, we've kind of touched on one, of course, being the, that the, uh, the seat width and seat belts should accommodate the 95% of the general population. But uh, there are some other recommendations that the society uh, made too, or made it as well. One of them is uh, about footrests and lumbar supports. Right. We're, we're talking a lot about bigger people. Smaller people have difficulty too. And for, for those of you who, who know people who are petite, their legs are often dangling. And that creates problems because they get a lot of pressure on their, their lower legs. And, uh, you know, one of the, the general rules in human factors is that one size fits nobody. You know, there, there is no one size fits all. One size fits nobody. Uh, so the way you do that is with flex is, is, is with adapt, you know, things that are flexible and adaptable and the ability to have foot rest you can put down to help accommodate the shorter people is a very simple accommodation, uh, that, that works well, the, the foot rest can go up for people who don't need them. They can come down for people who do need them. So, uh, that's a, a good recommendation. Uh, the other is, uh, lumbar supports. I don't know who designed these seats, but they go, they seem to be concave in the lower back where you actually need them to stick out a bit to support the lower back. And then the headrest always comes out and pushes my neck forward. It's, it's the worst possible design. It does not fit the human body. And so a little bit of adjustability goes a long way. Uh, things like lumbar support so that you, you get there and you can still stand up and, and your back is, hasn't been thrown out by the flight, uh, which, which I have had happen by the way. Um, the, um, pillow that the support of the back needs to be able to, to go up and down and, and it actually needs to to be able to go back so that you're not being being pushed forward and into uh, uncomfortable positions that's just just basic seat design um this isn't rocket science this is very well-known science uh, they really need to, to apply it to the design of the seating and and that's a strong recommendation that the uh, the airlines and seat manufacturers can use uh, do you have any experience or any data concerning some of the new uh, slim seat backs that some of the seat manufacturers have developed uh, over the last few years? Uh, yes, because the, um, they can use a lot of better materials, basically. They don't have to have as much bulk in order to provide the same amount of strength. And so that's allowed them to slim down the seats uh, and, and armrests and so forth. And that's all to the good because it allows you to get seats in there that provide more space for the, the human body uh, while taking up the same amount of space for the, the physical seat. So those kinds of uh, technological improvements, I think, are all to the good. So where is this, uh, where is this going? Uh, do you have any legislators that are, are, are working with you and, and see this as a cause and, uh, and trying to do anything? Do, do we see any? Uh, th- these are things that we've been talking about for a while. Fortunately, you've done a scientific study, so you can prove it as opposed to what you know, people have been just speaking about for years. Uh, what do we see the future uh, of this? So there are some uh, congressmen who've been very concerned about this particular issue. And they were behind the legislation that asked 
directed the FAA to look into this. Now, the FAA has taken quite a while to get back to the point where they are right now. I think they're several years behind. Some of that may have had to do with uh, COVID restrictions and so forth. Uh, but but I think there are members of Congress who are uh, concerned about this. I imagine they have to to fly on airlines uh, like like all the rest of us. Their constituents fly on airlines, and they know it's a it's a real sore point for a lot of people. So so that's the positive side. Uh, on the negative side, um, I think there's also a trend among uh, some Congress people who don't want to impose any regulations for anything at any time for any reason. And so that's the, the needle they're trying to thread is to say, how do we try and create uh, regulations that make sense, that serve people, uh, but that also don't overly constrain the, the companies? Uh, and, and where do you come down on that? And, and that gets to us some personal philosophy, perhaps, but that's the challenge we're facing. And so is it safe to assume that the airlines aren't going to take the lead on this, that it would require legislative lead or regulatory lead? Well, if you look at what's happened over the last 20, 30 years, and you can see very clearly the way the airlines have moved. They've moved towards smaller and smaller seats. Uh, When you have seats that are 28 inches across, and and they they ought to be at least, uh, uh, or, or they're 20, I'm sorry, they're 28 inches in pitch, and they ought to be uh, at least 32 to 34, then that tells you that we've just shrunk. Uh, When you have widths that are down around 16 inches, 16 and a half, and they ought to be uh, much larger, um, that they need to be uh, closer to 21, that tells you we've just shrunk and shrunk. Uh, So I do not see the airlines voluntarily changing this uh, until there's a regulation that's set. And the good thing about a regulation, and 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 what we really need to think of is it establishes a level playing field for everybody. It says this is the minimum and everybody has to play to the same rules to at least that minimum. If you just leave it to the airlines, then they're constantly trying to one up each other. They're constantly having to shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink until, you know, it, it's a race to the bottom, quite frankly. And the uh, flying public is the one that loses. Mm, sure. So I think there's a lot to be said for setting reasonable minimums that that would accommodate 95 percent of, of the population. And you mentioned IATA earlier. Is there, you know, interest at that level, at the international level, to try to address some of these, or, or do we think it's kind of, you know, mostly a, an issue or a problem that's uh, uh, specific to certain regions? I think it is a, is an international problem. Um, there was a standard that was set by the uh, CAA, which uh, is is in the in the United Kingdom, that had set some minimum dimensions. And I saw that it was called AN64, and I saw that was withdrawn in 2014. Hmm. So I think they were facing some, many of the same kinds of pressures from uh, airlines who wanted to, to reduce it. Um, the good news is that I think when the U.S. sets a, a standard and a requirement, a lot of other countries follow suit. And certainly um, if you can, can get the U.S. and, and the EU to, to agree on some standards, that's going to push those standards for across a lot of uh, the the airlines uh, that, you know, want to want to fly in those countries. Yeah. And I bet that regulation was uh, taken away because of Ryanair's desire to have uh, much denser aircraft and have the standing seats. Yeah. I don't even get me started on standing seats. Standing um, seats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They, they will. 
yeah, the airlines will will cram you in as much as they can. You know, that's and particularly a lot of the the, the budget carriers. That's that's mm-hmm. the game they're trying to play. Is how do we get you know dollars out without and people and and I think that's part of the problem too is when people buy a seat on an airplane, whether it's a budget carrier or or one of the major carriers, uh, they don't realize when they purchase that seat what size seat am I actually getting. Mm. On this plane, because it varies considerably, um, mm-hmm. both between airlines and even within airlines, as to which particular airplane you're going to be on, and even that can change after you've bought your ticket. So people just there's there's not a good correlation to say, oh well, people will buy more if they want a bigger seat. There's not a clear way to even understand what that is necessarily without doing a lot of research. Well, I call it the uh, I call it the P.T. Barnum effect because there's a sucker born every minute, and if you have a ULCC that's offering a fare to a location that appears to be the location that you're flying to for five dollars less people are going to buy that not caring or not knowing uh that it they're getting a completely different product than what they might be getting and all the other airlines all the majors have followed the ulcc because all they want to do is make it five dollars less than their competitor that's right so it's it's a race to the bottom and people don't realize what they are or aren't getting for that price Hmm, sure all right. Well, we'll have links in the show notes to some of the uh, the documents that we've uh, talked about, and they uh, provide some really good, solid information for people interested in this topic. But, uh, Micah, where else can people go? Tell us the uh, the website for the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society and any other resources that you might be aware of that people could be interested in. Certainly. Um, you can get more information on the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society at hfes.org. And uh, it's a wonderful resource. Uh, it has a lot of uh, information there and links. Uh, it can connect you to uh, organizations uh, across the country that uh, do work in this area, uh, whether they're uh, in universities or uh, corporations. And it provides a, a great resource for the research base associated with, with how we design systems better and more effectively. Terrific. And maybe uh, I mentioned SA Technologies at the at the start, but didn't uh, really explain it in much detail. So I, I give you the opportunity to tell us a little bit about SA Technologies. So SA Technologies is, stands for Situation Awareness, which is the research that I do. And uh, in that company, we're basically a consulting company. Uh, we look at uh, not only a lot of the basic research on situation awareness, but how you better design technologies and systems to support situation awareness. Uh, we've developed training programs for how to improve situation awareness and uh, working on areas including cognitive modeling and measurement of situation awareness in a lot of these systems so we can evaluate this. Is the new technology that's being designed and developed, is it actually effective at improving situation awareness? And that's at satechnologies.com. That's right. Very good. Well, uh, fascinating conversation, Mike. I really appreciate it. Uh, I know our audience is going to love listening to this. Uh, I think we we might have more questions and some other topics that uh, we could get into uh, more deeply, but uh, that's uh, kind of our our time for right now. So really want to thank you for for taking that time to talk with us. Really appreciate it, Micah. It's a pleasure talking with you all. And uh, if you're you're concerned about seat sizes, please call your congressman and and, uh, tell them that that you care about this and and you expect seat sizes to fit people. Very good. Good advice. Thank you, Micah. Actually, and Max, I actually did have one more question. I know. know (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. Say, Micah, this is sort of an inside joke because (laughs) Brian almost always has one more question. 
Go ahead, Brian. So, and I know this can never be legislated, but one of the things that I notice a lot is people wearing improper clothing, such as you know, women or men wearing rayon pants or dresses, right? And as you go down the emergency evacuation slide, they're going to melt and you're going to get burns from that. You know, pe- people not, it happens. I didn't um, think of that. I, I always thought it was more of a, uh, you know, a, a, a style or a fashion issue that people had. But yeah, I never thought of the, the friction. Yeah, but even men slide. wearing, you know, synthetic pants, um, people wearing shorts, people wearing flip-flops. Um, you know, all things that you really shouldn't do on an airplane. Are you guys looking at any of these clothing things to make it safer as well? We're, we're not specifically looking at that, but but you are quite right. Uh, there are good recommendations for what kinds of clothing you should and shouldn't wear. And uh, natural fibers, things like cotton, are much better than synthetics, which can melt in the case of a fire. Uh, flip-flops and sandals uh, are no. You should have uh, closed-toed shoes like uh, tennis shoes or uh, at least um, good-fitting shoes in case you do have to evacuate. One of the things that I always do when I sit down in, in an airplane seat is I count how many seats ahead of me is the exit row. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was taught that a long time ago because in the case of a fire, you're not going to be able to see where that exit is at. So always count how many seats to get to that uh, exit. Uh, and, and behind. And behind, because it may be behind mm-hmm. you. So there's there's some very good kinds of, uh, of rules that you can use to improve your ability to evacuate safely uh, in the case of a fire or an emergency stop. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and the reason I asked about the, the business class is because I, I have noticed recently that I have much more room, much more comfort, and I feel much safer, quite frankly, in a domestic business class seat than I do in the fancy schmancy international life flat seats because there's far less room in them in those little pods than there is in a domestic business class seat. And sometimes there's far less room in the pods than there is in a regular economy seat. Micah, you just need to have your sho- your shoulders removed. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> And it's not my business belly. class my... seats are nice. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I I think probably you know, one thing we can always do is is instead of assuming anything, you know, go on that seatguru.com and and look to see what the actual dimensions are of the seat you're purchasing. Mm-hmm. Always. Uh, a lot of people don't do that. We don't think to do that, but but there's so much variability in, in these products. Next, our own Rob Mark has a Labor Day message. The airplane geeks are off this week for the Labor Day holiday here in the States, but we'll be back to our regularly scheduled show of news and zaniness next week. I'm, at least I hope we will. But since Max asked us all to try and produce some short segment on something really interesting, I thought I'd take a few minutes to speak about Labor Day itself, which might be a topic that... Some of you living outside the United States might find worth listening to, since many of you know very little about it. But then, of course, from what I've seen, most people living inside the United States know very little about the labor movement or unionism either. Labor Day was first celebrated here in the United States on September the 5th, 1882, in New York City. If you think back to America in the late 19th century, it was a time of much labor anger at tycoons like Andrew Carnegie and George Pullman. The Pullman Railroad Strike of 1894, in fact, transformed Labor Day from a local event into a national holiday following worker clashes with federal marshals that led to the death of a number of workers. 
President Grover Cleveland rushed the passage of Labor Day through our Congress to avoid, or at least to attempt to avoid, any of the additional upheavals like the 1886 Haymarket riots in Chicago that killed a number of police and workers. Oh, in the labor movement here in the United States, names like Sam Gompers and Eugene V. Debs were pretty well known in the early 20th century, as were uh, organizations like the Industrial Workers of the World. We called them the Wobblies, the AFL-CIO, socialists, anarchists, well, the rise of unionism in general. Uh, But let's go back to the present for now. Maybe a few confessions about my own role in labor unions. Uh, I have a few, and for some of you, they may explain some of my opinions occasionally. My dad was a union plasterer here in Chicago, and my grandfather was the president of the Amalgamated Meat Cutters Union in the early 1920s in Chicago, when the stockyards were still in their heyday. If you've read Upton Sinclair's novel, The Jungle, there's a mention in there about my grandfather that I'm pretty proud of, actually. Now, being a history buff, although I'm certainly not the history buff my airplane geek's buddy David is, of course, I found the why behind the events of labor to be just as interesting as the events themselves. But honestly, I I didn't start out terribly impressed or really even interested in unions, to tell you the truth, just in probably in fairness. Well, however a kid in his early 20s defines that, of course. Now, my first exposure to unions was as a government employee when I worked for the FAA back in the early 1970s. I joined the infamous controllers union, PATCO, the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization, long before the strike of 1981. I eventually rose, or was kicked upstairs, some might say, to the role of president of our local at the Chicagoland Control Tower where I worked, which is now Chicago Executive Airport, just north of Chicago O'Hare. I found unions to be a great opportunity to interact with FAA management about working condition issues without fear of reprisal. They couldn't do anything to us because we weren't coming at them personally. We were simply talking to them as members of the union. Now, prior to the union, you took your career in your hands if you said anything to anybody about anything, actually. So management spent uh, really an inordinate amount of time bullying people, maybe just simply because they could. That didn't end with PATCO, though. The unions just helped bring a little balance to the constant arguments, which is really what unions were designed to do in the first place, create a balance of power between labor and management. Now, it worked fairly well as unions came to despise management with mutual feelings from management back at the workers. But it was balanced, no matter how you looked at it. Now, of course, for those times when it wasn't, most of us found out when a strike was called. A strike was labor's way of withholding their services from management. It was used to help leverage a solution to a wage or a working condition like a safety issue. In fact, this is a problem that's still prevalent in the U.S. mining industry here. We've had too many accidents. Now, luckily for me, I was out of the FAA when PATCO called their strike in 1981. An illegal strike, some may say. Despite oaths, some people also will tell you that a strike isn't illegal if you won. Unfortunately, in 1981, PATCO lost. They lost big time. The union was decertified a few months later, and 14,000 people lost their jobs. An interesting side note, though, when we talk about unions and PATCO and the people that lost their jobs, current union, NATCA, the National Air Traffic Controllers Association, appeared just a few years after PATCO disappeared because all of the problems that the union struck for in 1981 still existed. So maybe their hearts were in the right place, even if Patco's head wasn't. 
Now, my next personal foray into unionism was as a member of the Airline Pilots Association at Midway Airline. Now, it must have been the volunteer in me, but I always seemed to find the interaction between labor and management fascinating to the point where I really wanted to be a part of it. I took on the role of secretary-treasurer at our local council at Midway Airport, became the communications officer, and even sat in on a few of the eye-opening contract bargaining sessions. Now, we never had a strike at Midway Airlines, but we did have a couple of close calls, and they demonstrated to me why, to this day, the aviation industry is still one of the most unionized industries in America. Now, many of you under 40 probably have a strong distaste in your mouth when anyone even mentions the word unions these days. Well, we have a generation of uh, Republican control of our American Congress to thank for that. Good or bad, that's just the way it worked out. Now, that's not, of course, to say that unions haven't shot themselves in the foot many times. They've been slow to change with the times, as a matter of fact, so slow that American companies have sent hundreds of thousands of jobs abroad. Look at the U.S. auto industry. It all comes down to money most of the time, I'm afraid. Workers tend to be on the front lines of wage and job cuts. I mean, just look at the pension issues at United and Delta Airlines. Those pilots worked their careers expecting to have a nest egg to live on, and management at both airlines pushed off the responsibility for those pensions on the American taxpayer when things got bad. Look at the people at United Airlines for a minute. They watched management stuff their employee stock ownership plans into the toilet. They took huge salary, benefit, and job cuts since 9-11. And then, of course, there were those pension shuffles I just mentioned. To the employees, it's all about cuts when times are bad. But none of it ever seems to come back to them when times are good. You know what? I'd be angry at management, too, which is part of the reason unions still manage quite a bit of control over the airline industry. Much to the chagrin of airline managers, of course. So will the labor movement ever return to those glory days when tens of millions were proud? I know it sounds crazy right now, but people were actually proud to show other people their union card. In fact, if you came to our office here in Chicago, I still have one of my original Alpa cards hanging on the wall. Now me, honestly, I vacillate between both loving and hating unions, perhaps because I try to be open-minded enough to consider the situations before I either condemn or support either side. In the end, though, I hope you'll leave today realizing that, to me at least, unions are not the problem. At least not the only problem. Unions were created to bring balance to the workplace, something young people know very little about today. Let me leave you with this thought, though. If your boss told you you're going to be working 12-hour days, Saturdays, Sundays, possibly through your vacation, would you even think to question their authority or their right to impose whatever work rules they want? Of course not. But in a time gone by, people didn't simply turn the other cheek and take it. They pushed back. How many of you working today would even think of that? Yeah, I thought so. But realize, simply pushing back against the authoritarianism of an employer is not illegal. It's your right. But you have to believe it is. Look at the world around you. Ask yourself why there seem to be so many bullies in the workplace. Those bosses that we all complain about but never seem to be able to shake. Part of the reason they exist is that no one stands up to them. Everyone fears for their job or their next promotion or their next raise. And that fear of reprisal, <laughs> that's just where management wants you. For the Airplane Geeks, I'm Rob Mark. Finally, Hillel Glazier, our aviation entrepreneurship and innovation correspondent, brings us another Beyond the Press release interview recorded at EAA 
AirVenture Oshkosh 2022. This time with our friend Dave Pascoe, the founder and CEO of LiveATC.net. This is Hillel Glazer, the aviation entrepreneurship and innovation correspondent for the Airplane Geeks, and we are here at Oshkosh 2022 AirVenture. I'm here with Dave Pascoe of LiveATC.net. If you have been in the aviation geekdom for any amount of time, you know about LiveATC.net. You get their ATC recordings, either live streaming or recorded on at LiveATC.net. And Dave is the founder, CEO, and chief dishwasher at LiveATC.net. If you don't recognize the name, it's okay, because he was first on the Airplane Geeks about 550-something episodes ago in the Airplane Geeks' third year of being online. So we wanted to catch up with Dave since we ran into him here at Oshkosh and said, hey, what you've been up to, Dave? What's been going on? And how has LiveATC.net been doing and changed over the last God knows how many years? Morning, hello. Great to be here. Good to see you always. Um, yeah, so uh, we've been uh, kind of trucking on. We've been really busy. And uh, as we have been doing for the last 20 years, our, our big thing is really growing our network. Uh, if we don't have the channels and uh, the transmissions that are going over the air, then you know we're not very interesting to people because everybody always wants to listen to their airport. So we do a lot of work behind the scenes to distribute equipment and help people get on on the air, so to speak, and broadcasting their uh, local airport. So that's part of it. Um, Another big part uh, that we do that a lot of people won't see um, is we do a lot of uh, sort of B2B work with uh, airports and other private companies that are in the aviation sort of data business. And we integrate audio uh, with special systems we build in on a private network that uh, cover you know big airports like uh, LAX and JFK, New York metro areas, and air, big airports all over the country and the world. So that that keeps me really busy. So um, did LiveATC.net become a full time thing from the get go, or is it still not a full time thing? Or what, at what point did it really tip over to being like, okay, this is the only thing you have time for? Right. Yeah. So that was around 2009. Uh, so I've been doing it full time since then. Uh, we started out around eh, roughly around 2002, and it was very much a nights and weekends thing. I was very busy. Uh, at that point in time, I was uh, kind of in the midst of the first startup company that I uh, uh, helped get off the ground and uh, then did uh, a couple of other ones after that during the 2000s. And 2009 was it mainly because of the uh, introduction of the iPhone and uh, Android operating system, which enabled us to uh, monetize the mobile apps and uh, get that off the ground. And then some of that other B2B stuff that I was talking about sort of emerged right around that that time. And the revenue from that enabled me to you know do it full time. Yeah. So you must have been on the first time with the geeks right about when that transition happened to full time, the tipping point. Yeah, it was right around that time. I can't remember the exact uh, year that that episode was in, but yeah, it was right around that time. And, uh, you know, but, but prior to that, I mean, it was I poured a lot of uh, hours. I mean, a lot of hours, a lot of, uh, I mean, a fair amount of money. We had revenue from the website early on, but uh, once, you know, the, the the mobile app revenue was meaningful enough that uh, we were able to do a lot more and get a lot of equipment out there. That's kind of key, you know, getting these stations up on the air. And uh, you have some personal experience with it for working with me, trying to get something up at your place. Um, you know, it's not, it's not rocket science, but it, it's got some details and, uh, most importantly, you got to get an antenna outside and you got to be able to pick up the signals, essentially. 
Um, so uh, spent a lot of time helping people through that and, and sending out guides as to how to do it. And it's but that's the critical thing. And then tying all that infrastructure together and keeping it all up and running, that kind of plays to my background in uh, network management and network engineering and systems engineering uh, and what today what they call DevOps and and other similar, you know, buzzwords that I was doing before those, those are really buzzwords. And so network management, network monitoring, you know, our, the entire network is monitored 24 seven. And even if some channel goes down and we can't get it back up right away, we know, you know, we also get floods of emails from people that say, Hey, you know, this thing was up all week and you know, now the channel's down, what's going on. And so a lot of people kind of treat it as kind of like their personal air traffic control cable company, but we're not charging them you know, cable company rates to listen. So, so we get the things when we can and, uh, try to do a really good job. And if you look at some of the channels and I have all the data, um, the uptime, given what we're, what we're using modest equipment, uh, it's pretty spectacular. In some cases it's not so great, but mostly it's infrastructure issues like power that's not reliable at a given location or internet. Uh, yeah, to speak by the personal experience, just so everybody has a context, the amount of work that Dave has to do to get uh, a station up and going is not insignificant. It's a ton of time that you can't compress and you, you can't split. You have to do the time and you have to be at places to see if it's going to work. You don't have a lot. It's not easy to send people out and go test things for you. We tried that remotely once. In fact, you and I have been talking about putting a station up at our place because of our proximity to a channel uh, uh, frequency you don't have a good you know, handle on since after Oshkosh 2019 yeah, and then the pandemic hit and yeah. whatever you sent me all the equipment and then we just yeah. like, then we went into a holding pattern, into a holding pattern. <laughs> exactly. And we finally were able to come out of the holding pattern last year. Um, finally got the antenna up and for some strange reason, it just would not catch the signal from that location and give it not without a lot of noise down to where we, were, we put it. So maybe a couple of years we'll try again in a different place if you don't find a better solution, but it's a lot of work. And, and to get that many stations going around the country, uh, I'm, I'm assuming you're not going across the country regularly. To no, no, no. It's it's opportunistically, you know, I'll install systems for the B2B stuff. But if I'm if I happen to be in an area and I can combine, you know, visiting some sites that may prove to be problematic or the person can't put up an antenna on their own, I'll, I'll stop by there and kind of kind of help out and try to do that. Well, you know, what Live ATC does is kind of very uh, it's very analog. You know? So like. You know, people are familiar with flight feeders and putting up an ADSB monitoring station, for example. That is, uh, it's hard in its own right. It's the, almost kind of almost the same equipment, but the antenna is smaller, and you just have to have a clear view of the sky generally, unless you're trying to pick up the aircraft on the ground. But that that's exactly what our problem is: is that we're trying to pick up air traffic controllers, and unless it's on a mountain, in some cases they are, the air traffic antennas that they transmit from they're on the ground. You know, there may be 20, 30, 40 feet off the ground. So we have to be in a location that can be either higher than that or has a, you know, not a direct line of sight, but can pick up the signal and say within seven or eight miles. And not in a so, hole in the middle of a woods area. Yeah, they're not down at the bottom of a hill and, and all that. And every situation is unique. So, you know, I've got software uh, that, that I use that knowing exactly what the antenna pattern is of the FAA, the exact antenna they use and the power of the transmitters, we can analyze any given path. So if I know your location, where the receiving antenna is going to be, I can draw a map automatically with software to see what the rings are that show you the coverage area. So it's very 
you know, analogy and ADSB is digital. So, um, but it's still a radio signal. But again, ADSB is much more line of sight. So as long as you can get it with a clear view of the sky, you can do it. In our case, it's not always that way. We may get a strong signal or a moderately strong signal, but there's other extenuating circumstances like noise. So noise makes radio signals less readable. Everybody knows this from riding around, say, with their AM radio, and they hear static when they go under like a high-tension power line, for example. We have those problems, but in droves. There's all kinds of interference that actually affect air traffic frequency band signals. It can be power line noise. It can be interference from a uh, bad transmitter on an FM radio station and mixing of all kinds of signals. So um, it's got a lot more analog difficult. I, I call it kind of analog difficulty. But, you know, that kind of plays to my background in radio and radio system design and, and ham radio and having done that since 1980. So I've got a lot of uh, theoretical and design experience, but also a lot of really in the trenches uh, field experience, fielding these systems that are used for communications. Which means we basically have a whole lot to thank you for to make it so much easier for us <laughs> to just flip on an app or a web page and get what we'd like to hear when yeah. we're nerding out over traffic control stuff. And you're providing clearly a valuable value-add service to other businesses who make use of that data for their own purposes. And um, so the a question that a lot of people have, we have overseas listeners, is how is that legal? Mm-hmm. And um, I know you've answered that question the first time you were on the show, mm-hmm. but since I don't expect people to go back and listen to that episode. <laughs> right. So maybe in a couple of seconds you can say why is it legal and how is it okay? And I know in other countries it is completely not legal yeah. to, to do what you're doing. So in the U.S. and Canada, it's completely legal. Uh, there is no no you know, law that prohibits it. In other countries, there are laws, in some cases, very old communication laws that some of them date back to World War II and prohibition on communications. Uh, some uh, have been relatively new. Uh, Spain, Belgium are a couple examples. And they are, uh, you know, for whatever reason, they've made up rules. They've Some of them are driven by the air traffic controllers who lobby with the PTTs in those countries to make it illegal which is kind of ludicrous because it's open air communications. It's not encrypted. What we do is largely educational and uh, really feed the reason that I developed it and kept it going and and grew it was um, that I wanted there to be, you know, more transparency around incidents and, but more importantly, pilot education. So that's how it really started. That was my goal for putting it up for myself. And then I just opened it up to the community because I was trying to listen to radio transmitters that were too far from my house, and I was able to put radios up closer to them and broadcast it so that I could listen to it, because I was learning working on my instrument radio. So anyway, that's so in the in the beginning, I was the customer, really. I was the original customer. So uh, that segues nicely into, so how has, besides the number of transmitters, how has Live ATC changed since the last time you were on the show? What's the uh, significant ways? The, you know, the significant ways are we have deeper retention of, uh, of the audio itself. You know, we keep audio for uh, a little over a year. Um, and, you know, so those are available. It's still freely available for up to 30 days for people. But largely it's been the technology, the, the efficiency of uh, deploying stations. And then that kind of ties right into the growth of the channels. I mean, we're over 3,500 channels now on the network. I don't remember what we were at, but uh, back at that podcast, I'm 
imagining we were probably between, you know, maybe a thousand and fifteen hundred or something like that. But when you consider some of the heavy lifting and the fact that antennas have to be put up, a lot of people think we just tap into the uh, the FAA, you know, audio circuits and and we're they give us a feed and they say people say, you know, why don't you have my airport? Do you know that my airport's the busiest general aviation airport in name a state. Um, and, <laughs> and I'm like, no, I have no idea that there's a lot of traffic in and out of there because I can't see the flight aware data, you know. So we know all these things. It's just that there is some heavy lifting involved to get, get stations yeah. out there as we discussed. So which segues nicely into then what would be the thing that would help Lively to see the most? Like if you could do this right now or get it in your hands or mm. have the time to do, it's like, mm. what's the thing that's like, man, if I just got that out of the way, we'd mm. be, you know, in a different place. Yeah, it's, it's, it, Really, that's a that's a good question. Right now, unfortunately, it's uh, we have some supply chain issues around one of the you know critical components we use is Raspberry Pi board. And uh, I don't know if all the listeners know, but anybody who's tried to buy one knows that they're really hard to get right now. They're almost impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the uh, situation, the last I heard, may not get better till April of uh, 2023. So you know we have some residual stock. A lot of that has to be reserved for our B2B activities. Uh, so we can't just you know send out a system to somebody you know at random we have to prioritize right now and we're recycling older equipment and i never thought we'd be in that position but we are right now so we're trying to get stock from them uh just to kind of get through to april if hopefully that's really when they'll fix it that explains why you want to be put from my basement so <laughs> yeah <laughs> if the listeners don't know he'll just uh, hand it off uh, a system to me so i'm like hey we got one more back <laughs> you know it sounds really kind of crazy but it's uh that's one of the bigger things. Uh, and then just, uh, you know, things that we can do is just sort of make it a little more sort of out there as to how to how to build these things. A lot of education. There's a lot of more material that we can put out there. Uh, when people write in, you know, we have pre-canned responses that have a lot of that stuff. We need to get a lot of more of that stuff out on the website. Yeah, so just to tie it to something uh, else on the company I interviewed, I suspect that they're not... I think they might have been driven out of business or at least had to put in a holding pattern because of the lack of Raspberry Pis. Who's that? Um, they're uh, an ADSB in company. Uh-huh. Um, and I don't want to mention them because, oh, okay. I don't, because I don't know what their current situation is. Yeah. And so, But it wouldn't surprise me because they were just beginning to get off the ground, just beginning mm-hmm. to get traction, had a great product. Yeah. Uh, and I just think the lack of equipment may have caused them to not really be able to make you know compete. Um, yeah, it's it, it's definitely a part of it. I think for for anybody using the boards for any any kind of uh, you know commercial purpose or whatever, uh, there are other substitute things, but a lot of those have the same kind of supply chain problems, and some of it traces back to chip shortages. But in the Raspberry Pi case, they at the beginning of COVID they ramped down production, and then they thought demand wasn't going to go up, but it went up like a hockey stick. So they got caught, and then once you get behind, it's really, it really it's is. hard to ramp back up in the midst of a pandemic. Yeah. So uh, have you thought of um, open sourcing what goes into the making of one of your component boxes so mm-hmm. that people can just make them themselves? Yeah. Oh, yeah. People can completely make them themselves today. I mean, it's all been – the software that we use is out there. It is uh, – it is open sourced. It's uh, it's called RTL SDR dash Airband, um, and uh, that's largely what we use. But we use other components. But uh, Dark Ice we use if you're connecting uh, a Raspberry Pi to a scanner to an analog radio. Uh, so yeah, it's all out there. There's nothing proprietary. So, so nobody has to have you ship them something no, if not they want all. to do it themselves. No, and we have plenty of people that already have radios. They already have an unused computer, and it doesn't have to be a Raspberry Pi. People can do it off of any any operating system, any piece yeah. of hardware, as long as it has a sound capture device 
or it can support one of these uh, software-defined radio uh, dongles, mm -hmm. then they're good to go. Cool. So I think that's a good place to land the plane, so to speak, um, yeah. because uh, what you've provided us with is uh, an understanding that if people want to get involved in, in capturing these signals and shipping them to you mm -hmm. and getting there, there's a benefit to them, right? Yeah. I mean, if they're a pilot and uh, they fly locally, they you know basically are creating, for a very small investment, they're creating a way for them to get uh, free recordings of everything at their local airport. If they're an airport operator, same thing. Uh, and people can listen live. If they have observation decks, they can, you know, stream out through there through a speaker. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of benefits for a flight school. It's obvious, you know, instructors can go back and review radio calls with their students while they're not in the hot seat. So there's a lot. There's a lot that it offers people. But if they're connecting into liveatc.net, mm -hmm. there's also like a broader benefit. There's like everybody else gets to use it. Yeah, everybody else gets to use it. You get to be, you know, basically doing a good thing for the, it's good karma, do a good thing for the community, contribute to local aviation efforts. Well, the cool thing about one of the cool, many cool things about the company is that every time we say the name of the company, we're giving out the, the, web, the web address. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so, so it, yeah, it worked out well. Getting out, yeah. getting, getting people that want to get involved to get in touch with you. It's just liveatc.net. Liveatc.net. There's a link on the front page to a contact form. Just fill it out um, and contact us and we'll, uh, we'll get back to you. Well, I appreciate you taking the time out of Oshkosh. I know you're only here for a couple of days. Yeah, so, unfortunately this year. Yeah, so I'm glad we got a chance to catch up. And yeah, me too. Uh, continued success. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care. And for the Airplane Geeks at AirVenture 2022, Phil Glazer. See you next time. All right. Thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast and for understanding our temporary format change. And thanks to our guests this episode, Dr. Micah Ensley and Dave Pascoe. Thanks also to Rob Mark for his annual Labor Day message. You can find us and show notes for this episode at airplanegeeks.com. The direct link to the show notes for the episode is airplanegeeks.com slash 715. And you can reach us via email at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. So please join us next time as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. <laughs>